Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Multispeed Technologies, the show that puts you, the listener, in the driver's seat because you are the content. The phone lines are open to be a part of the program. It's a free call. 1-855-450-NOAA. That's 1-855-450-6624. Give me a call and we'll have a conversation about your tech questions or business and tech questions. Linux advocate, above all else, small business owner, and now host of the only radio show centered around you, the listener. Welcome to the Ask Noah Show. My name is Noah July. So good evening to you guys. Happy to be here. Another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicking off this hour, and I'm excited to say I've been living on Ubuntu 17.10 this week. More on that as this show continues. By the way, tonight we're doing something special. Tonight we are going to try to make an, an extended effort to include the people that can't usually be here with us. We understand that we have a wide, diverse audience from all around the world, and some of you guys don't have access to a telephone or um, software that will allow you to place a call. And so I have been working all night on a project that I've been told by a couple people wasn't even possible. And uh, we have somehow connected our call-in system to the Mumble Room. So if you're not familiar with what Mumble is, it is a free and open source communication software. A lot of people would argue far better than TeamSpeak, which is kind of its, uh, it's, kind of its uh, competitor. It tries to be as good as Mumble. And um, I, I have been a huge fan of Mumble for a long, long time. And I, I've made a lot of friends uh, through our Mumble server. The uh, community Mumble server, it is, um, I, I believe it's mumble.jupiterbroadcasting.org. And you have to change the port number to end with a, a four uh, and then uh, sign in, you know, create a username and um, and you should be able to connect. We're going to be taking those calls as the uh, as the show goes on. Joel starts us off this hour. Hey, Joel, welcome to the Ask Noah show. Hey, Noah. One of the most interesting things I've heard reported about Ubuntu 17.10 is the new captive portal feature. I'm curious if that would help me out with uh, my connecting to my university Wi-Fi. Uh, I've sent you an email with uh, the screenshots of what I'm experiencing. Uh, basically, the gist of it is I can only connect through the to the wi- to the university wireless via via uh, Firefox instead of my preferred browser, which is uh, Vivaldi. Any way to um, in, any way to uh, alleviate this uh, inconvenience, or is this just sort of um, Firefox being the IE of the uh, op, op OS. Mm-hmm. Um, the d- distro I'm using is Ubuntu Mate 17.10, and I'm curious if the Captive Portal feature is um, across all Ubuntu flavors or just only for the main Ubuntu spin. Yeah. Um, well, so there are a couple different ways that a Captive Portal works, Joe. The, the, Joel, excuse me. The first is a simple HTTP redirect. And it, uh, it returns a 302 to the client, and then it sends them to the captive portal. Now, that method of captive portal, that should, you should be able to do that on any usable modern web browser. So my guess is your university is not doing it this way. The second way is redirecting the client using an ICMP redirect, and the final way is redirecting them using um, DNS, of course. My suspicion is it's one of the last two that your university is using. So what can you do? Well... So you, you have a couple questions in there. So to the best of my understanding, the built-in captive portal system is a function of GNOME itself, not Ubuntu. So the reason that they are saying that 17.10 includes the captive portal feature is because 17.10, in fact, includes GNOME. But I believe you're going to have to be on GNOME specifically to get that to work. And again, I'm not a developer and I don't play one on TV, but I think it's just an embed of uh, WebKit WebView. And somebody, please correct me on that if I'm wrong. A couple of things on captive portals. We use them all the time at AltaSpeed Technologies for our hotels because we are forced to by the fa- franchise requirements. Now, if you are one of the people that force captive portals on people, I invite you tonight to go die in a fire. Uh, if you are one of the marketing folks that push captive portals off on some of these places, the last place a person is going to spend money 
the last place, let me help you with this. The last place a person is going to spend money is at the website of a hotel or restaurant that they are already visiting and using their Wi-Fi. That's why they're using their Wi-Fi is because they have already purchased a good or service. And so your captive portal is just serving to annoy people like me. But to anyone out there that has, has to contend with the captive portal, and, and we do, make sure you're not using HTTPS addresses. <clears throat> so that's one thing I see, especially in airports a lot. Um, if you're using an HTTPS, then basically what happens is the, the, you have to use a website that doesn't use SSL because um, it, 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 the computer starts to suspect it's being attacked. And yes, before anyone says it, I do realize that this directly goes against my previously stated mission of every site being encrypted with you know, SSL and Let's, Let's Encrypt. But for the time being, uh, you know, it is what it is. This is what we have. So uh, micaptive.com is a really great site. That's what we recommend to our clients, micaptive.com, A-M-I-C-A-P-T-I-V-E.com. Uh, it's a site that will simply just show you a picture of a guy if you are online or redirect you to the captive portal if one exists. Overall, uh, uh, but yeah, that, that's, that's really the only advice I really have for you. Uh, and thanks so much for the call. Charlie is with us, joining us from the Mumble Room, our Mumble Bridge, the Ask Noah Mumble Bridge, we'll call it. Hey, Charlie, it's been a long time coming, but welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Hey, Noah, thanks for having me on today. Yeah, and you now just to clarify, you are one of the guys that um, that w- was not able to join with a, a, a you know a, a regular phone call because you actually live in Australia, so you're calling us from literally across the world. That's right. Yep. What time is it there, if I may ask? Uh, nine o'clock in the morning. Wow. Okay. Well, so okay. So at least we're not keeping you up in the in the middle of the night or anything. So uh, go ahead with your question. How can we help? Before I get to the question, I just thought I'd let you and the viewers know that I actually went through 12 different distributions of Linux on my computer in two months. Wow, 12 distributions. Which one did you start with? So I started off with Mintmate, uh, then I went to Solaris, then I went to Debian 9.1, then I went to Ubuntu 17.4, then Debian 9.1, uh, 9.2, sorry, then SteamOS, then Manjaro, then pop, then a couple others, then Ubuntu seventy ten beta two, and I tried a few others that were mentioned on DistroWatch as well. Man, you are the Australian version of my uh, fourteen or fifteen year old self. Uh, you are a one dedicated Linux user. So uh, okay, so you you have gotten to these fourteen distributions. You finally landed on one that is working for you. I take it. Hopefully, after all that work, I found I found out of all the distributions. My best positive experience with software that works, um, Steam that works because I'm a PC gamer, and um, HDMI issues I've had because I've got an uh, AMD R9 380 uh, video card, mm-hmm. which is um, not exactly working out of the box in Linux on some situations. But I've also got two screens. One, but the, the first screen is a 27-inch HDMI, the second screen in, is 19-inch um, VGA. Some distributions of Linux don't power on the primary screen. Some don't power on the second screen, <laughs> I okay. found. But of all the distributions, the best experience was Ubuntu 17.10 Beta 2. Excellent, excellent. So you and I are on the same distribution at the moment then. Uh, I'm actually back on Windows 7. Oh, you are? Okay. All right. All right. Well, you listen, yeah, nobody yeah, can um, give you a hard time for not giving it a good effort, right? Like, I mean, you are you are like the most dedicated Linux user I think I've talked to in a long time. Yeah, I've talked to several people on several, um, like, IRC rooms, Mumble rooms, Reddit, you name it, I've asked everywhere. And for my custom PC, I couldn't find a solution to get everything working out of the box for me. But what I have read is kernel 4.14 is making some massive improvements in the AMD driver situation. AMD has um, said, and this was, I think, on Phoenix or, oh, my God, Ubuntu site, that they are working on installing Linux, um, making it easier for the AMD drivers. Hmm. Okay. Um, So the problem I have today, um, coming back to that... (laughs) would be Samba. I've got a 
Toshiba Chromebook, which has been modded with CBIOS, which is running Gallium OS. And it's then but can't talk to my uh, PC, which has Windows 7 on it at the moment, and my flatmate's PC with Windows 8. Okay. Um, uh, so Samba is a... Let me ask you something. Is there a particular reason that you want to use Samba on the computer itself? Like, would you consider using, like, a file server like FreeNAS? Well, the Chromebook only has a 16-gig SSD. Right, right, right. Uh, and I want to be able to look at stuff stored on my Windows 7 PC, which has two 4-terabyte drives, and then what what happens in this house is the Chromebook is actually the media center. Okay. So it's connected to the TV and the 5.1 amplifier, and we watch all the content in the house in the lounge room on the Chromebook. But it's not seeing the window share. So at the moment, what we're doing is copying stuff onto a USB stick and oh, then no, no, no. it off the Chromebook. That oh, way. yeah, it's, it just, that sounds, I, that's painful just listening to it. So the, sh- the, the share that you're trying to connect to is hosted on a Windows machine? You're trying to access it from Linux or the other way around? Yeah, so from the Chromebook, which is running Gallium OS on the Chromebook, we're trying to access uh, my machine, which is Windows 7, and a Windows 8 computer as well. Um, and it is also, I think, Class C, they call it, um, or it could be Class A. It's the 10.0.0 number instead of the typical 192.168.0 IP range. Okay, well, the IP, the IP shouldn't really have anything to do with it, but the... Um, I, I So... I, I rarely, if ever, see it because what you're talking about is really the Samba client. Most of the time, where the problem is is in the Samba configuration itself, but that's usually when you're hosting it. So, a couple of questions: on the Windows computer that you're trying to access the Samba share on, do you have an account created with a password? Yeah, we've actually on both PCs we've enabled guests, and then we've also set up secondary accounts and shared all those, and you can see all the shares between the Windows boxes. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, for example, on my Windows 7 box, I made a user called Chromebook. Mm-hmm. And the password is Chromebook. And that just has one share on it, so the Chromebook can see it. But it can't see it. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. So, but the, Windows, but the Windows 8 box can see that share and log in as that name. What ha- did, when you? What happens when you go into in on the Chromebook? If you when you open up the the network browser, if you click on browse networks, do you see the client at all on the network? Do you see even? Oh, do you even see the Windows client? The Chromebook in front of me. Yeah. So, so that that's one thing I would check. I'll just I'll walk you through a couple different things that you can you can check. First, I would click browse the network and see if you can actually see that client. If you can, great. If you can't, I would look to. Actually, I would do this. The first thing I would do is shut off the Windows firewall. Let's make sure that that isn't a problem at all. Uh, then I would go and look oh, at, the firewall's off. Yeah, okay. Then I would go and see if I could browse the client. If I can, try and double click on that client and see if you can see a list of the shares. If you can't, if you go up, to, it depends on exactly uh, you know which distribution, which file browser you're using. But there's always a way that you can go in and manually type in SMB full colon slash slash the IP address slash and the share name. That in almost all cases should prompt you for credentials to log into the Windows box. Okay, I just clicked on that Windows networking thing in the file mm-hmm. explorer type thing, and it said failed to open Windows networking. Uh, failed to re- retrieve share list from the server, no mm. such file or directory. Can you can you browse any Samba shares whatsoever on that on 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 that Chromebook? Uh, no. Okay, so it is a problem with the Samba client then. Um, so that yeah, and, and that's 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 something that I can't solve on a five minute radio call. But what I can do is, um, yeah, yeah. I what I can do is I can put you back on hold and, uh, and and I'll have Sarah pick up some of your particulars, and then what we can do is we can actually get a ticket open through you for you through AltaSpeed Technologies. We'll get a technician assigned, and he or she will work with you uh, to see if we can get that whatever the problem with that Samba client is, because that is definitely where the the issue lies. Again, uh, 855-450-NO, that's 855-450-6624, or join us in the Mumble Room, mumble.jupiterbroadcasting.org. Uh, Rob is calling from Texas. Hey, Rob, welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Oh, hello, sir. How are you? Hey, pretty good. Good to speak with the Texan. How are you doing, sir? 
I was very good uh, to begin with real fast. Uh, you and everybody at Jupiter got me back into Linux. I'm very happy about that. But my question uh, tonight is about, uh, oh, sorry, uh, bandwidth control. Um, I tried to set up a squid server to do that bandwidth control, but no matter what I could do, no matter what I did, I couldn't get it uh, to limit control between the devices in my, in my land. So I was going to ask you what would be my best option to do that. You know, my suggestion, so what you're trying to do is uh, is what we call QoS, or quality of service. And basically what we are doing is we are telling given network devices, either every device can use this maximum amount of bandwidth, or this device, because it's, you know, streaming something or whatever, like here at the studio, the transmit machine, the broadcast machine, that has first priority. So everything else in the network will shut down, up to and including our call server sometimes, which I found out last week was kind of a problem. Uh, and so, but... It prioritizes the traffic of the broadcast machine going out, and um, we can. The, the easiest way to set that up, Rob, is uh, with a device from Microtech, M I K R O T I K, and I will have a link for you in the show notes. But basically, there is a router called the Hex. Uh, I believe it's. Let me look it up here. I think it's the 750 Hex. Uh, let's see here, Microtech 750 RB750, RB750 Hex, something like that. Yeah. So. There are two. You can get the RB750GR3, and I have a link to that in the show notes for you. Um, or there's a sl- that one's fifty nine bucks. So there's a sl- slightly cheaper one. They call it the Hex Lite, and it is a five port uh, router. I think the difference between the two is the processor is uh, is not quite as heavy duty, but the Lite version has the same uh, router OS. The Lite version is only thirty six bucks. It's a really great little device, and uh, it's a, it's a full fledged enterprise grade router. Um, but what this what this particular router is going to do is it will let you uh, do quality of service, or we call them queues in 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 router OS. Um, but it's very simple, straightforward to set up. And um, you know, for any hotel chains, we're talking about how we have specific requirements to use uh, captive portals. We also have specific requirements to use. Uh, there's a, a maximum that we're allowed, maximum speed we're allowed to let people use, uh, and so that's what we do. We do it, we do it with queues in router OS, and uh, there's plenty of YouTube tutorials on how to do that, and I'll include a link to this device in the show notes for you. Uh, and thanks for the call. Ken is calling from California. Hey Ken, what's up? Hi Noah, nice to meet you. Hey, same. How can we help? I had a question about. I had a question about kind of your experience with uh, content publishing and your unique perspective as a technologist's dad. Mm-hmm. I have two boys that are eight and 10. And for the past year, they've been bugging me about uh, creating their own YouTube channel, about gaming and, and, and other things. But I've been a little apprehensive about letting them dive into the online world yep. and kind of unsure about setting their perspective or their expectations right Yep. and how to also protect them from, you know, if there are people commenting negatively on it or things like that. What is your kind of perspective on places to start to look to how to set up right and maybe to help guide them in it? Yeah, uh, it's no joke. Uh, it really isn't. Um, there is actually one of my, uh, one, one of uh, one, a good friend of mine. Um, actually, I wonder if I could get him on the, on the show. Um, I've worked with them on a couple different past. We passed clients uh, to him a couple different times, um, but uh, basically, this guy's name is Tommy Jordan, and he runs a company called Twisted Networks. And uh, Tommy wrote a very interesting article on protecting your kids. And again, I'll have that article linked in the show notes. Uh, it's not for the faint of heart. If you are, uh, you know, if you are, it, it's not. I mean, it, it, it's real life stuff that happens on the internet. Uh, to parents that are not doing what Ken in California is, is, is he's, they're not asking those questions. Um, anyway, that, that's kind of a side rant and, and it's, it's, it's useful information and it, it will give you depth and understanding, uh, you know, full depth and understanding of the subject. Uh, to answer your specific, specific question, what I do in particular is I don't let my kids post to YouTube. Um, in fact, we, we moderate what videos and channels the kids can watch on YouTube because you can you can find some really weird areas of YouTube, not even like the outright stuff that is like that's not kid appropriate. Like even the stuff that is appropriate there. There's like these they're adults and they dress up in like 
costumes and it's weird. Uh, and so, so anyway, we have, we have, you know, metered that to a certain extent. Um, what I have done for my kids, cause my, my son likes to play Minecraft and he likes to make these videos in OBS of him playing Minecraft and narrate the whole thing. And, um, what we did for him was we just set up a telegram group and we put some of our friends and family in there and he is allowed to drop his videos into that telegram group. Now I'm the admin of the group, so I can choose and my wife is too. We can choose what people are in that group. And so we control who is seeing his content. And it's, it's interesting to watch how careless kids are with a webcam on. And it, it that, that alone has enlightened me be, watching you know what happens when he thinks he's being careful. He thinks he's paying attention to 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 what he's quote unquote putting out on the air. Um, so yeah, as as a parent, I would be worried about that. And as a parent, I would uh, take some serious steps to uh, you know to to make sure that that um, you know exactly what's going on there. Uh, there's other ways to do it. Um, you could set up uh, if they if you re- if he really wants to just see his name and the whole YouTube logo and stuff like that. Um, there are ways you can upload videos uh, and set the channel to private so only uh, people with an invite or certain invitations can see. I don't remember the project off the name of my head, Ken, but there's a there's a project where you can basically set up your own self-hosted version of YouTube. I'll see if I can. I can't. I'm not promising that's going to make it in the show notes because I don't even remember what the name of it is. Maybe somebody in the chat room can help me. Um, but there is a there is a there's a way that you can basically mm-hmm. host your own YouTube, so you could set that up for him. Maybe um, all of those would be an option. Does that does that kind of answer your question? I'm sorry, I'm kind of all over the place. It's a touchy subject. No, that's, that's, those are some good places to start. Yeah, that's what I would check out. Now, I, I, have, I have dealt with this exact same thing myself, um, you know, and, and it's, it's, it's frustrating as a parent because you want, to, you want to encourage your kids to explore technology, to enjoy technology. Um, I didn't have a lot of oversight when I was growing up because I knew more about the technology than the people that were supposedly having oversight. And I try to keep that in check and in balance. The fa- just because I can control, I can just because I can get to a point where I could set up a management port on a switch and monitor every single packet that leaves my son's computer doesn't mean I should be doing that. Um, and at the same time, there's I, I'm also, you know, again, this Twisted Networks article on uh, kids, you know, it's it's one of those things where you just you got to be careful. Uh, Charlie, we'll bring him back from the mumble room has a comment uh, about the previous call. Go ahead, Charlie. Okay, I'd just like to pitch in. I've actually been doing uh, video game footage on YouTube for five years. And something for the younger audience is um, you can do video footage perfectly fine without a webcam. Like, that keeps a lot of people um, protected with their identity, no matter if they're 14 or 40. And you can use OBS to create content, which is free and open source program. It works on Linux, Mac, and Windows. And you can even disable comments on your whole YouTube channel. Uh, you know, you can also assign other people to moderate that for you. So the parents could moderate the communication for uh, the younger person. Yeah, that's true. And you know, the the other thing is too is that and and thank you. I appreciate that. Everything you said is is spot on. Um the uh chat room is saying, you know, YouTube is not necessarily where the technology is. That's not necessarily where they learn about technology. I think that is I, I think that there's there's a lot of truth to that. I think if we actually sit down and think about it, you know, what are they really getting off of posting this video online? And like you said, you so my son's new laptop, his uh, ThinkPad does not have a webcam. I assume that's the last laptop I'm ever going to be able to purchase that doesn't have a webcam built in. Um, but and so I've done exactly that. He just doesn't use the USB one anymore. And so everything he does is just screen capturing. Um, but, you know, a lot of that you know, is going to be, and I, I just know from my kids, they, they want to see themselves. They want to see their, their picture. They want to, they want to, they want to say the things like, like my channel and subscribe, all that stuff. And so, you know, that it just, it's one of those things where it's, it's a, it's a fine line to balance. But I think especially those of us that are technically literate, those of us that, you know, have the upper edge, I think we have a real, a real chance to, to let them experience technology, you know, with, with safe boundaries. Jay is calling from Pennsylvania. Hey, Jay, welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Hi. Uh, so I just have a question about what you think about the general technicality level of the of the technology podcasts uh, that are out there. And um, regarding JB, I've I've recommended JB to my friends, and and most of them have found it a bit high, uh, like a bit above their technical level. I mean, they're college students, so they understand that you know. That, that that they may not be there yet, 
but uh, they just found it a bit off-putting about how uh, about how high level it was. And you can't just put out a stack, and, and you can't just put out a podcast about you know this is what LS does. I mean that's 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 what uh, uh, you try to do sometimes. You know on the Ask Noah show, just make it you know simple like the TLDR. Uh, you know for the people who are just trying to learn for the newbies, but for the rest of the shows like. Um, TechSnap and you know uh, and BSD even I mean I mean BSD goes goes in my head but I can still understand some of the stuff. So what do you think about that? Yeah, uh, it yeah. So part of what you're talking about is identifying your target audience, right? Like you have to you have to know who your listeners are and what they expect from you. And uh, you know when I entered the, the when I entered the space when we had a chance to reboot um, the Ask Noah show. We knew we were going to do some things a little differently than we had done them in the past, different than we'd done it with Linux Action Show, different than we'd done it with User Air, different than any show that we've ever done on JB. And and there, there was a couple of things that played into that. Both Chris and I um, have a background in audio and, and, and playing with it. And what we are able to actually put out over the air sometimes is a fraction of the quality of what can actually be produced inside of the studio, right? And that was one thing that drove Chris to start producing a lot of his content offline uh, is he knows that if you have two people and they are doing double-ended recording, so each person is recording locally, and then you bring that into an editor and you clean that recording up, man, you came out. You come out with a with a, with a with the most pristine product, uh, you know that you can offer as long as you're using high quality preamps, high quality microphones, high quality recording stuff. Uh, he knows that, and um, and once you get that bug, then it's kind of hard to go back. And and I've kind of I wouldn't say I've gone the other other direction, but we've kind of we've kind of wide. I have gone the direction of I am okay taking callers on a 16 kilohertz phone call, even though the audio quality is going to be drastically less than it would be over mumble or Skype. Um, I would say that the, the, the audio quality that comes in for calls over the phones is easily the worst audio quality of any show on the network. And yet we still take calls. I mean, we, the, the call queue stacks up and people listen to the show. And part of that is because, I understand my audience. I understand. I, I thought and Chris did too. I mean, it was really the show was more his idea than mine to begin with. Um, we understood that the, there are these people, there's an audience out there that wants to call in, ask a question and hear that question answered by an industry expert and uh, participate in the community, be part of the community and provide a service to the community. Uh, and when I was when I was able to understand that, then I knew, OK, this is the premise of the show. But then as we actually got into the intricacies of it, originally, we launched the show with the expectation that we were going to answer newbie questions. We were going to answer questions for the people just getting started with Linux. And within three weeks, mm -hmm. it was pretty obvious that that wasn't going to happen, that the people that were just getting started with Linux weren't really interested in listening to a show about Linux because they're not interested in Linux yet because they haven't gotten started with Linux. Uh, and the people that I'm were interested... Yeah. Right, yeah, exactly, chicken or the egg. And so, and, and so then, then what, we, what we augmented to is, well, there's actually, turns out there's a lot of people that have day-to-day -day questions about how to get Linux, you know, running on dual monitors or whatever. And those kinds of things I deal with on a daily basis. Um, you know, on my day job. And so to come on the air and talk about those things, well, it turns out there's tons of listeners that want to listen to a show about that. And there's tons of callers that want to talk, call in and ask about that. Uh, and so we augmented and we shifted. And um, yeah, I, I think that I think you're absolutely right. Um, I, finding where in that spectrum you want to stay for being technically literate, how in depth you want to cover something. You know, that's again, that's it's something you have to you have to judge for yourself. But I the the the, the it's both a blessing and a curse that the noise floor is so high uh, for the for the podcast world. There are so many low quality shows that it makes it easy to stand out by putting in just a little bit of effort. If you go buy a Audio-Technica AT 2020 and you go buy a PreSonus uh, audio USB interface, you are talking two or three hundred dollars. And your audio quality is going to be 10 times that of 90% of the podcasts out there. It's not that expensive. It's not that difficult to get good sounding audio. It, you, just have to, you just have to care. You just have to bother. And then it happens. Uh, and, so, and so anyway, that's, that's, you know, that's really what we try to do you know, on this show. So, um, yeah, basically, uh, you know, when we launched the, you know, I, I, when we launched the show, we had a chance to do things a little bit differently. We had a chance to mix things up. And I know what I personally want from a review 
and I don't want to listen to some Indian kid drone on for an hour on a radio show about what he likes and what he doesn't like. I mean, that, and that would make an interesting radio show, maybe, for some people who are interested in that. But by the time you sit down at your computer, if you get into that mindset, when you sit down at your computer and you're ready to blow your operating system away, you're going to nuke and pave, and you just want to get to the meat, and you sit down and you say, should I install Ubuntu 17.10? Is that a good option for me? What can I expect? I think we have created the best distro review that I personally have ever participated in. And uh, we put it up on on our video channel. Uh, so you can head over there. It's, I guess it's uh, asknoahshow.com and click on the video launcher and check out this. Check out our video review of Ubuntu 17.10. Here's what it is. It is under five minutes, but it covers all of the basics that you can expect to see and feel on the latest version of Ubuntu. Now, if you'd like it, great. That's awesome then like and subscribe to the video because we're going to do more of them. And if it's not your cup of tea, then I want to know about it. So email me live at asknoahshow.com. In fact, you can email your questions to live at asknoahshow.com if you have them this hour. Uh, we'll take emails as well as phone calls, 855-450-NOAH. That's 855-450-6624. Live at asknoahshow.com or the Mumble Room, mumble.jupiterbroadcasting.org. Change the port to dot .4. Man, that does not roll off my tongue very well. Um... Yeah, and it used to be a different web address, and then we had to get to like an SSL search or something, so it changed. I don't know, um, but yeah, you know, I so I, I started off this week, um, and I started looking and paying attention to all the people I come across in my day job. I cannot find anyone that uses stock GNOME, and so uh, what I came to the conclusion to is that stock GNOME sucks. Now, that's both a good and a bad thing. Because It's a bad thing because as a new user who, who finds him or herself on Stock Gnome, they're going to be lost like a ball in tall weeds. But it's a good thing because ultimately it means that any user can have their perfect desktop. The entire idea of Gnome is to be extensible. And I had to augment the way that I look at this. Over the past couple months, I've started to see Gnome as... Not so much like a hack job where the basic thing isn't there, so you have to apply all these hacks to make it usable. I started to look at it as there are options, and you can turn the options on or off. But there are so many options that it is impossible or impractical to include all of the options installed by default. So they put them on a website, extensions.gnome.org. And you can simply go there in a web browser, and there's a little button to turn extensions on or off. Ubuntu 17.10 has an exhaustive list of customizations that have been done by Canonical. And uh, I have to eat a little bit of crow. I think uh, very early on when they first made their announcement, I was on, I was a guest on another show. And I think my speculation at the time was that they were going to ship stock GNOME because that was what I had interpreted from Mark Shuttleworth. And obviously I was very, very wrong. They have an extensive list of things that they have done. And, it, you know, it's, it's interesting because as a person who hates stock GNOME, I feel right at home using stock Ubuntu 17.10. And what that tells me is that Canonical has really nailed a distribution for me specifically and my kind of use case, which I think is shared probably by a lot of people who are using a mainstream Linux desktop as their primary driver. And that's not to say that there aren't problems, and we're going to get to those. In fact, so as an aside, the next time around, the next time that we do a review, I'm going to start calling the first review that we do of a release, I'm going to call it like a first look or something like that. It has always driven me nuts, the people that try to do a review on day one, and because you, the, the reality is that you, you, you just can't do it. And, and I learned my lesson the hard way with 1604. There's just no way that you can get all of your nuggets on how an operating system is going to work in just a couple of hours. And the other thing is there aren't enough, there are enough changes in between the beta and the final release that you can't even really evaluate the software in the weeks leading up to the release. 16.04 was fantastic in the weeks leading up to the release. And then we installed the, you know, the final release and it's like, this is completely different. Uh, there were, there were, there, I ran into a lot of problems that I didn't have in the weeks leading up to it. Um, so th I think that's what I'm, I think that's how we're going to approach this from now on. And again, I'm interested in feedback live at asknoahshow.com, or you can even tell me on the air here, 855-450-NOAH. That's 855-450-6624. Let me know. Say, yeah, 
I think doing a first look and then going back and doing a full review, I think that makes sense. Or no, I'd rather just get it all in, in one piece. But yeah, the review that we've done, I'm happy with it. I think it stands. I don't think there's anything I said in there that is that I, I have to retract. Um, there are some issues that have cropped up since the time that that review has come out. So maybe it's a little overly positive. Um, but again, this, these are the kind of things that you find out when you actually use it as a daily driver like I'm doing. Um, the advantage of having an IT company which heavily deploys Linux is that we have a lot, a lot of real world knowledge coming in. So we have deployed 1710 on a ton of machines today. Uh, we've upgraded machines. We have fresh installed machines. We have cross migrated machines from other desktop environments. Um, and so we have started to compile a list. These are, you know, these are things that we have run into here at AltaSpeed. They're things that I've run into personally. They're things that I've talked to my friends on the internet. Problems you might run into in 1710. There's not a, there's not a, there's nothing that I would say is so bad that it would keep me from installing 1710 or even over 1604. Um, because the sooner that you get onto GNOME, the sooner you can start learning and becoming accustomed to the way that basically most Linux distributions are going to work because they're, you know, SUSE, Fedora, Red Hat, Ubuntu, they're all using GNOME by default. Arch, even, to a lesser extent, because there is no real default. Um, but Antegros is, you know, heavy, heavy, heavy GNOME people. Uh, top icons is broke, and I mean big time broke. Um, Discord notifications, uh, not not necessarily the notifications, but the count, they're not showing up, the badge numbers, and in some cases, and you know, the, the thing is, I use that all the time to kind of judge how far behind I am in catching up in, in, in various groups. I do the same thing on Telegram. In fact, Telegram's even worse. The Telegram, right now, as, I, as I'm doing this show, my Telegram icon is not sitting in my top bar. And the problem with that is, I don't know if... Telegram is even open or not. And so sometimes I'll go back and I'll realize I forgot to start tele Telegram back up and I've been missing messages. It's a huge problem. I would imagine it's a simple fix because Top Icons Plus has worked flawlessly for me in Entargos. So I would assume that it's just a matter of tweaking something. I would imagine, you know, that's a simple fix, but it's a problem right now. Let me tell you. Um, Lux encryption. There is this really weird and fairly obvious error that I'm kind of surprised got missed. But basically, during the installer, it forces you to use the US-based layout. And so if you select a different layout during the installation, you're going to wind up with an encrypted drive that you can't decrypt unless you can figure out what your passphrase would be using a US-based keyboard when you were expecting whatever the other layout that you're using. Uh, we had a caller last week that was concerned about high DPI under Linux. Well, the good news is that the interface to get high DPI working on 1710 is super straightforward. I was telling them about this little slider window and you have to drag it to the right or to the left. No more. Uh, they just have 100, 125, 175. It's super straightforward. Here's the downside. The downside is that you have to enter the magical incantation on the command line of g setting space set space org dot gnome dot mutter space experimental space dash space feature space quote uh, open bracket apostrophe scale dash monitor dash frame buffer apostrophe close bracket quotation mark. And uh, yes, we will have that command in the show notes and you have to enter all of that to have the options to show up. And I, I get it right. Like right in the command. Clearly, we are in enabling an experimental feature, but here's the problem. In 2017, guess what? High DPI monitors, they're not experimental. They're very much a thing. If you go to Best Buy, half of the monitors they have now are high DPI. Uh, so this is a problem that, uh, you know, hopefully gets a lot of attention quickly. Uh, I typically tell people to stick with the LTS. I usually stick to the LTS, even myself, on my laptop. Um, we know that most people stick with the LTS, but this time around... I have convinced myself to go all in. And uh, as, as, I, as, we, as we do the show right now, I am running 1710 on my laptop. Um, and all of the computers that we work on, which by the way, actually, so this brings me to another point. This is a personal badge of honor for that Ubuntu 1710 gets. There is a sacred flash drive that is in our shop. And anyone who has ever worked at AltaSpeed Technologies, uh, is, they know exactly what I'm about to say. This particular flash drive is orange in color. 
and it has flames on it. And it's connected to one of those little key retractor zipline thingies. And the other end of that retractor is permanently mounted to the shop bench. And whatever distro is on that drive, which by the way, I personally load those distros onto that drive and I verify it and nobody is allowed to monkey with that drive. Uh, that drive contains the operating system that goes by default on anyone's computer that comes into us. So if you bring us a computer and let's say your hard drive has failed and we talk to you and we say, you know, your hard drive has failed. You, we'll pull all your data off of it. We'll put it onto a backup drive, whatever. Um, did you want to replace the drive? Yeah, I want to replace. Okay, we'd probably recommend an SSD. All right, yeah, sure, that'd be great. Uh, you do anything? I just browse the internet. I check my email. Okay, we'll probably put a 120 gig SSD. If you don't, unless you specify otherwise, that computer is going to leave the shop with whatever OS is on that flash drive. And as of 10 a.m. this morning, that operating system is Ubuntu 17.10. Uh, I have used it enough over the last four days that I feel very comfortable doing that. And I feel very comfortable after talking to Alan Pope and Martin Wimpress that Canonical really believes GNOME is ready for the average user. And Wayland is on and working by default, and I've seen no major issues. There, There is a, you'd have to go back, There's it's a couple user errors ago, we, Chris detailed exactly what the issue with lagginess in Wayland is. Um, and this is, again, one of the great things about having all of these people working together, having Red Hat and Canonical all pool resources, because what it's going to mean is ultimately a better experience. And hopefully they'll be able to tackle some of those even complicated problems. Uh, we're going to bring Charlie back from the Mumba Room. Hey, Charlie. Uh, oops. Uh, hey, Charlie. Welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Thanks. I just uh, want to comment about how you were saying calling it first look instead of uh, a review. And yes. that's what I've done on YouTube as well. I often call stuff first impressions or first look where it's I'm testing it on the day and sometimes live. So that's a good idea for anyone. And also, you know, create a list of stuff you want to do on that program or distribution. Like, okay, our checklist is it's got to work on this, it's got to work on that. You know, does this hardware work? And that way you can, like, show your people that you're inter interacting with. It, it takes off all the boxes. Yeah, and it's, it's interesting, right? Because what you find out on the first day is sometimes you go into it with a positive attitude or negative attitude, and that somewhat affects what your first impression is. And then over time, the really, you know, earth-shattering problems, they really rise to the top. And then the not-so-serious ones, they kind of fade away, right? Yeah, that's true. And sometimes I'll even do a video on a product, be software, uh, distribution, or hard hardware, um, a year later as a review and not many people seem to do that but it's more of like we've had a year we have like good experience over that period of time and our overall review on that year may differ from just using it for a month yeah sure yeah no that makes uh, that makes perfect sense and, and i agree with you I, I i frequently find that the longer i use something the more problems that pop up although Having used a number of different Linux distributions over a number of years, I have I really feel like at this point I have gotten to the point in my life where I can tell within the first day or so, judging I know about on average how many problems to crop up and how serious those problems should feel. And I, I can pretty much tell at this point, yeah, this is gonna be a real problem, you know, going on or or this is gonna work out. And my, my impression so far of seventeen tenant is that it's rock solid. You know, and part of that is because Canonical is coming back to an actively developed desktop. You know, everyone, we're all talking about how great it is that Canonical has gone to, uh, to um, GNOME. And, and it is great. It's a, it, is, it is absolutely the right decision for them. Absolutely the right decision for Linux in general. Absolutely the right decision for desktop Linux. But all that said, it's not like Canonical stopped working on Unity and went and started this project called GNOME or even went back to GNOME as it was five, six, seven, whatever it was, eight years ago when they transitioned into Unity, it's not like they got all of that done in six months. They went to a very active community that is actively developing a world-class desktop and tweaked it a little bit. And, that, and while a great thing to do is not 
it, 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 there, there are, what I'm trying to say is there's a lot of other people that made that possible. And I think it's important to give a plug to everyone else who has contributed to GNOME over the years while Canonical was off working on Unity. And that's not, that's not, a, that's not a put down on Canonical. They have still brought amazing value to the Linux ecosystem, and they continue to do so. And all that is still true. And I'm still over the moon with the direction that Canonical is going and continues to go. But I just feel like I'd be remiss if I didn't say thank you to Fedora. Thank you to Arch. Thank you to Red Hat. Thank you to Seuss. Thank you to all of these distributions that have been plugging away at the GNOME desktop. Thank you to all the people that made the extensions uh, to the point that where when Canonical wants to put a dock, they can just use Dash to dock. And they tweak it a little bit and lock down the version so that it can't be, you know, dynamically updated or updated without, you know, some mechanism of making sure it's going to work. But they had a Dash to dock to, to, to go from. And thank you to that person who did the dash to dock. Thank you to the person who did top icons plus. So we don't have the stupid drawer coming out at the bottom of our computer. The icons then show up at the top where I expect them to and where all my, the rest of my notifications are. Where, uh, frankly, I think GNOME should have put the, the you know, the, the, the bar, taskbar, whatever you want to call it. All of this stuff is happening because somebody else did it first. And uh, Canonical took the best parts of that and did an amazing job. Not selling them short. They did a phenomenal job combining all of this stuff into a world-class desktop operating system. But they did it with the help and backing of a lot of other people. And um, so, which Chris and I talked about this a little bit uh, a day ago or so. Um, you know, Fedora is, the Fedora team, the Red Hat team, they're coming out and saying, you know, here's what we're working on and here's what we're doing. And part of that is, you know, it's kind of sad that they're not getting some of the attention that Canonical is getting. Um because it really is a team effort. And, and really, that's ultimately what open source is all about, is that uh, we have these competing projects. We have Unity. We have a team that was devoted to Unity, a, a team that tried to make Unity all that it can be. And there were people like me that thought that Unity did some things better than any other desktop environment, namely multi-monitor. Uh, even, even 1710 does not have the same level of multi-monitor support that, that uh, Unity did. So uh, anyway, huge thank you to everyone that was involved with that. I think you guys are amazing. Now, I want to talk about something else that's kind of cool. Bitcoin. My favorite show on Jupiter Broadcasting to date is a little show called Plan B. And I think it was probably the, uh, is, it is the best show, in my opinion, that JB ever did. Uh, and I miss it immensely. And every time, and you can ask him, Every time we have a conversation about the direction of the network or where the network's going or what things the network should concentrate on, my first suggestion every single time, I've been very consistent about it, is bring back plan B. Dollars currency does not have any intrinsic value, inherent value. Gold does not have any intrinsic inherent value. In fact, gold is a pretty useless metal. It's a it's a it's a decent conductor, but silver's better and costs less. Uh, it's gold is a soft metal, so it's not really good for building anything. It's just pretty and shiny. So the intrinsic value of gold is very little, and the intrinsic value of a dollar is even less. It's literally paper that's not even paper, and there's not even there's not even any space to write on paper because it's so filled up with green ink stuff. So you can't even use it to take notes. Uh, you know, and so all of this stuff leads you to there not being a lot of intrinsic value in currency itself. And um, so what we have invented is a currency for 2017, and that is what we call cryptocurrencies. And basically what a cryptocurrency is, is if you think to yourself, how often do I go to the bank and get my paycheck in cash. How many times does my employer pay me in cash? I would imagine, especially if you're under the age of 30, very few of you do that. And I'll bet you if you're under the age of few, uh, 30, fewer of you yet ever convert the money that you are paid not in cash to cash. It probably stays electronic the entire time. And um, what Bitcoin is, is the next evolution of that. So instead of basing it off of what we call fiat currency or basing the digital dollars in your bank account to actual hard currency... It just exists on its own. We control Bitcoins. Bitcoins come into existence by people solving math problems. And every time somebody solves a math problem, they're awarded a Bitcoin. It takes about 10 minutes. Well, it takes 
probably less than that now, but the specification was it should take about 10 minutes to solve a math problem. And the math problems get harder as the more people work on it and they get easier as the less people work on it to try to keep that 10 minute per Bitcoin thing. And then there's this split that happens every four years where the amount of Bitcoins that are released are cut in half. Um, so instead of, you know, one every 10 minutes, maybe we do one every 20 minutes. And there are only a total of 21 million Bitcoins that can ever exist. When you want to spend a Bitcoin, we simply record it on a public ledger. So essentially, we all have like this big spreadsheet. And when somebody makes a purchase, gives a Bitcoin to somebody else, we record that inside of the spreadsheet. And everyone has a copy of that spreadsheet. So in basically what, what this is, is like I said, the evolution of currency in 2017, it just makes sense to have a currency that is based on the premise that it's never going to be turned into a actual dollar. It's a trustless currency. And, um, last week, this trustless currency, which a lot of people, a lot of people have said from day one was going to crash and burn in a, in a fiery death, topped $6,000 per coin. $6,000 per coin. Now, this is to give you some perspective on that. Five years ago, six years ago, they were selling for like $40 a coin. A couple years before that, it was like a dollar. And a couple years before that, it was like hundreds of thousands of coins for a penny. Uh, so it, the, the, the growth has been great. Whether or not Bitcoin actually succeeds, cryptocurrency in general has succeeded as a principle. I can send money to Japan instantaneously. I don't have to worry about PayPal. I don't have to worry about converting it from dollars to yen. I don't have to worry about the, the none of that. I just I take an address and it's like email and I can email somebody money. It's fantastic. Uh, and. I have gotten so many questions from customers that I've called in, from people I've run into. I'm surprised we haven't got any callers on the air that are, are asking about it. But basically, here is the here is the here is the the lowdown. If should you invest in Bitcoin? No, you should not. If you think Bitcoin is going to make you a fortune, don't. You're you're going to lose all of your money, and it's going and you're going to do it very quickly. Don't invest in Bitcoin. I'm not suggesting that. Do not mine Bitcoin. Do not get into mining Bitcoin if you want to. If you want to make Bitcoin that way, that's a terrible way to do it. It's very expensive. There are people that are spending hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars on Bitcoin mining machines. Don't do it. All of that said, you have an extra 10 bucks and you want to buy some currency and watch it go up because it's fun. And you don't want to worry about all of the, you know, federal trade regulation stuff that it would be with investing in a stock market or something like that, because it's fun, not because you think you're going to make any money, not because it's a good financial decision. It's like, gambling except maybe a little more dangerous if that's fun to you go ahead try it i think it's i think it's actually kind of fun and i, I did pay for all my living room furniture that way so uh there's that um mining i mine bitcoins because i like mining bitcoins it's not cost effective i pay more money to buy bitcoins that way but i like doing it because i think it's fun and so if you're like me and you like having fun doing these things then you should give it a shot and you should check out Bitcoin. And I think we're going to, I think Bitcoin is going to take a bigger uh, place on this show because uh, I'm interested in it and I think it's really cool. And I think that it's going places. All right. We're going to go back to the mumble room. Uh, my good friend, Michael Tunnell from Visuex. Uh, he's joining us. Hey, Michael, welcome to the Asanoa show via mumble this time. Hello. Hey there. So uh, I wanted to talk about the um, the extension, the top icon extension thing you talked about okay. for Ubuntu seventeen ten. That that actually there's a problem with that, and it's a known problem because the the reason why some of the stuff it doesn't work is because it's not using top icon plus. Oh, it's using an extension that they forked. They're using something called it's a forked version of something called K status notifier slash app indicator. That's a good project. And name. the reason why they're doing that is because. Yeah, it's a fantastic name. Uh, it rolls off the tongue. So the, the reason why they, they're using that is because that particular extension allows for app indicators to work, specifically app indicators. And the reason they're not using Top Icons Plus is because there's an API that GNOME created for the Top Icons Plus extension, essentially. Okay. And unfortunately, the reason why the the Top Icons Plus is not used is because that API is being deprecated forever. So GNOME system trade thing at the bottom left that everyone hates, 
they hate it too, but they were tra- they put it in the little tray at the bottom of so, so people would hate it, so that it would try to convince people to stop wanting them, so that they can eventually remove it entirely. That is the dumbest so, explanation of anything I have ever heard in my life. Not not you, but this idea that they that they want to take right. something so useful and make it a pain, so that I want to get rid of something so useful. Pretty much exactly. They, their GTK four has that API removed entirely. So that top icons plus will just break as, as soon as it switches over. So that's why they're using the other thing so that to make the app indicators work in the future. What are the chances that this gets solved? At this what? What are the chances that this problem gets solved in relatively short order? Is it not that simple? It is definitely possible. Um, well, the main thing is that there's going to be a lot of work for the for the app indicators. So, and that's possible because if you look at the unity setup they pretty much made every application even if it didn't have an app indicator support to work with app indicators so they just kind of need to do it again through this new extension is it it possible whether it'll be with lts or not uh, it's hard to tell would it, so okay, wow. So even six months out, what do you think the possibility of them going back to, however it was that Unity was implementing those icons and the heads-up display and stuff? I know there's a lot of people that really miss that. I guess what are so, the chances of that coming to know? It's, it's unlikely because they did it through the shell. And because the GNOME shell doesn't support anything like that, they'd have to rebuild the shell. It's the same reason why the HUD is pretty much impossible to be done in GNOME, because it requires a rewrite of the shell. Gotcha. All right. Well, hey, uh, michaelvisuex.com, thanks so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Uh, you might notice, uh, uh, if you look at the way that our uh, our live streaming, uh, all of those graphics, uh, that stuff is done, the Ask Noah dashboard, asknoahshow.com, all done by Visuex. We don't work with anyone else because uh, Michael does a great job. And thanks for coming by the show and sharing that with us. Absolutely. Cool. Thanks. Thanks for the call. Garrett is calling from Portland, Oregon. Hey, Garrett, welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Hi, Noah. Uh, I have what is hopefully a quick question. Okay. Um, I am trying to recover data um, uh, from an XFS file system. I'm using PhotoRec, and I'm coming up with a lot of .apple uh, files and .xfs files. And while they only they're they're taking up about twelve k uh, each, but it's adding up and it's taking up a lot of space. I'm wondering what they are and whether I can get rid of them. Uh, I I don't know is the honest answer uh, to you. I guess what I would do is um, if it, are there a lot of them? I mean, twelve k is not that big. Uh, several thousand. Really? Okay. Um, upwards of six. What's the total space they're occupying? Um, well, I've had to split drives. So I've had to uh, uh, stop the photorec process and then do it on a uh, terabyte drive. So I haven't been able to go through all the files, but uh, maybe a couple hundred gigs. Okay, so not that. T- so here's because here's always my my modus operandi. First thing I like to do, Garrett, is move all of my files over to a, you know, like a, a one terabyte drive, two terabyte drive, whatever, because they're it's cheap enough to buy at Best Buy. And then once I have a, sure. a a clean copy of all that stuff, then I go and start actually pulling the files that the user actually needs back. So you, oh, I need this photo, or I need that thing, uh, and that way, if those XFS fi- if those hidden files dot XFS dot Apple, if those files end up being important, you always have them to go back to uh, and you could store I mean even if it was you know two terabytes you could store that for probably 50 bucks uh, and then always just have the the and just pull the files you actually need does that make sense yeah okay yeah that's um, okay yeah sorry no, yeah, that's fine. I just want to make sure I was—I I actually answered your question. It, and it's—it's it's a, a—it's a confusing thing. Data recovery is always a pain because you never quite know what you're going to get, and that—that's even worse uh, when it's raid. Hey guys, follow us on Twitter at Ask Noah Show. Make sure to check out that video review, AskNoahShow.com. Huge thanks to Sarah, our call screener, who's doing double duty today. Ben, our producer, Rakai, our video editor. We hand you off to Crosspoint. Coming up next on Logos Radio, KEQQ, 88.3 LPFM, Grand Forks. <laughs>